It is good to be back with you this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. So we're getting back into our 1 Samuel sermon series. This morning, looking at two chapters. Don't be alarmed, chapter 29 is short. Chapter 29 and 30, because they go so well together and the story really does connect and we'll be able to work through both. Um, If you've got your Bibles open, in order to get us back into the right mindset, context, I want you to just turn back to chapter 27. We're not going to to read that chapter, but I want to take us there just for a moment to see the very first verse. So 1 Samuel chapter 27, Daniel, I'm sorry, David, we're not talking about Daniel this morning, David has been fleeing from Saul for some time when we get to this point. And in verse 1, we hear, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And so what that opening verse tells us is actually quite a bit. One is what's going on inside of David's heart that leads him to this conclusion. Even though God has again and again revealed how he is caring for and delivering his anointed one, David, David still is at this point of despair thinking, surely Saul will eventually get me. Which leads him, the reason why I wanted, wanted us to go here first, it leads him into the land of the Philistines for 16 months. So for 16 months, he's in the land of the Philistines, and there's been some interesting activity happening between him and the king of Gath, King Achish. David has convinced King Achish that he is actually here to serve him. And Achish believes so much so that he gives David a a piece of land, Ziklag, to be with his 600 men and their families. He gives them a place to live. And during this time, David is, is making runs with his men and telling Achish one thing when something very different is happening. Achish thinks that David is on raids with his men throughout the land of Judah, proving that he has left his people and he's now serving the king in uh, Philistia, in, in the, Philistine, uh, the, the Philistines' king. His heart has moved over to this camp. All the while, David has actually been raiding other areas, enemies of Israel, um, in this whole season of time. And that brings us kind of fast forward to chapter 29. So if you remember, if you were with us a few, few Lord's days ago, chapter 28 took a, a different route where we focused on King Saul and all that transpired with him and the witch of Endor. But now in chapter 29, where we find ourselves this morning, we're back picking up the story where it left off in chapter 27. So please follow along as I read from God's word. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So just so you understand what's happening now, David's been over in the land of the Philistines. They now are mounting their forces to attack Israel. David finds himself in a very interesting, peculiar situation. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle." lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? 
Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, till now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless, as blameless, as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed not one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and, their, and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to the Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And when David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, or when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread ab abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck, down, struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who, who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. 
But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, is, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negeb and Jeter and Arurur and Ziphmoth and Eshtemoah and Rachel in the cities of Jehermelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Boreshen, in Atheth, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you guys for hanging in there with me. As we look at these two chapters, we are going to see this story unfold and if you look at uh, the title of this sermon in your bulletin, um, as I spent time just reflecting on all that has transpired in David's life leading up to these events, you could, you could quickly enter into his experience and, and affirm the title, The Last Straw, After the Last Straw. It just seems to keep compounding and and difficulties keep mounting in his life and some this morning may be hearing that and hearing the story and and it's resonating with you maybe just the the circumstances of life you you think it's coming to an end this is all that i can manage and then more happens what do we do in those moments i think this passage helps us so i pray that by the power of the spirit we would have ears to hear minds to understand and hearts to receive what God has for us in his word. So David finds himself first experiencing God providing a way out where it seemed to be no real way out. So this is going back to chapter 29. He's been with his men in the land of the Philistines for 16 months, proving himself to King Achish when they begin mounting their forces, so the people of the Philistines had, had kind of outposts, major cities, and when there was a war like this, all five of those cities would come together making one large force, one large army, King Achish being one of those regions that would come together for battle. And David finds himself now pitted against his own people in a situation that doesn't seem to really have a solution. What is going to happen when he actually is following in suit with Achish, gathering with the other troops of the Philistines, and then heading to God's own people, the people that he has been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over? Just when David seemed to be completely trapped, God delivered him by means of the suspicious Philistine lords who objected to having these Hebrews in their midst. God using the suspicious Philistine lords to make a way out for David where there doesn't seem to be a way. And then you have this exchange with David and King Achish that leads us into David and his men going back, being sent away to Ziklag. Now, just locations are important in understanding how this story unfolds. They're, they're like 60 miles north gathering with the, the, the large Philistine army, and Ziklag is a three-day journey back with his men. So you can only imagine the mixed emotions of relief coming off of almost having to make who knows what kind of decision on the battlefield, what he might do in that setting, to actually being excused and sent back where he's no longer even engaged in the war that's about to happen. So they have this long journey to reflect, maybe to get very excited about the the hope of getting back to their family and their temporary home. 
And so they're making their journey, and the way the author lays this out really does begin to build suspense as the reader. We've heard it all now, but just entering into the story, these 600 men who were told 200 are so exhausted by the time they get back, they're not even able to continue on. So this journey was emotionally, physically exhausting. Both highs and lows, emotionally excited, emotionally working through what had just transpired. So much happening. And just imagine for a moment when they get an eye shot of smoke rising from Ziklag. Just let that kind of hang in the air for a moment. You can see smoke from far distances away and then start piecing together and you're on foot. What are we going to return to? What, what has happened to our family, to our houses, to our homes. Now, with that in mind, Amos, in chapter 5, gives a, a very interesting illustration. And I think that it describes well what's going on in David's life as chapter 29 ends and 30 begins, and he's making his way back to Ziklag. So, in chapter 5 of Amos... We get this picture described of a man who encounters a lion, and he flees from the lion only to meet a bear. And you're going, wow, that is going from one bad situation to another. He runs from the bear, finally reaches his house. You can just imagine exhaustion, panting, leans up against a wall, thinking that he has removed himself from danger, and a viper comes down and bites him. And you're going, this is unbelievable how this is unfolding for this individual. He thought he had reached safe, safely, only to discover that he failed to see the enemy slithering along the top of the wall. It must have seemed something like this as this story is unfolding in David's life. They had just escaped from what seemed to be a trap of not knowing how to get out of that situation, battling their own people, to this long journey back to Ziklag, only to find smoke rising. And really, this is a description, kind of the stuff of nightmares. The Amalekites had overcome Ziklag, we're told. But just note, David and his men don't know that. We as the reader know that, that Ziklag has been burned with fire and again, we hear that every person has been taken captive. All the women, all the children. David and his men don't know that, but we hear that. Okay, so we have all of this information, and they make their way into the town. After all the difficulties in David's life for so many years now, month after month of harassment, flight, danger, David has now reached... I would, I would submit the end of his rope. It was, at this point, too much to face. And we hear the, the, the author helping us enter into just the heaviness of this situation in verse 4. David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I don't know if you've ever experienced a situation, an episode in your life where that has been what you have gone through. But you are at your lowest of low at that moment if you don't even have any more tears to weep. So this is what's happening, and just imagine that illustration that Amos gave us. And now David, what could go, what else could go wrong? That, that surely has to be the bottom of the pit. But then we read in verses 5 and 6, we read that David's wives were part of those who had been taken captive. David was greatly distressed in verse 6. For, for the people who were with him spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. I don't even think we can begin to imagine the, the pressure that David was under in this moment in addition to the sorrow that he faced, now the rebellion of his men 
Who knows how many of these men really voted and were moving towards actively stoning David at this point. The last straw after the last straw. And I want to stop here and just lay out the scene. There are two very different options at this point in grief. Everybody is experiencing it. Very clear in verse 4, they have all wept until there are no more tears to weep. And now they stand at a crossroads in this grief and sorrow and despair. What are you to do? With little strength that was left for the men was then to exercise blaming David and desiring to stone him. Grief for them, this turn that, that happened in their lives, it moved into bitterness and to rage. That, that's, that's one direction. Then we look at David, and in verse 6, the the last part of the verse, this is really the key that unlocks the radical change in David's life. David found strength in the Lord his God. There were two options there for everybody that was present. And we see the men who are willing to stone their leader Let bitterness and rage overcome when they are experiencing this deep hurt and grief and sorrow. And where we did not see David in chapter 27 turn to the Lord, here we see him finding strength in the Lord his God. Here's a question. What did finding strength in the Lord look like? What does that look like for both David and for all of God's people? I think first, it's important for us to see what strengthening oneself in the Lord isn't. What we see in verse 4 is that people can cry tears upon tears and vent emotions And that is all part of the grieving process and yet still not strengthen themselves in the Lord. We see that with all the men who turn towards rage and and bitterness. And I, I don't want to downplay this reality that there is, for believers, a freedom to be open and to be able to talk and to be able to let out all the emotions that we're going through. No, no, no stifling the groans and the moans and the crying in the midst of suffering. That is not what I'm saying should not be present. But does our distress, our grief, bring us before God or does it move us away from God? What did finding strength in the Lord look like? We've seen earlier in 1 Samuel an example of this. If you recall in the woods of Ziph, David is met by his best friend, Jonathan. And Jonathan there helps us understand what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord because he helps his friend, the vivid image of taking David's hand and placing it in God's hand, strengthening him in the Lord. And this is what Jonathan told him that actually helps us understand. Jonathan said, do not be afraid. God has promised to give you the kingdom. And God, this is summarizing, God keeps his promises. We find David being reminded and reminding himself of who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised to do. Please hear me in that. When, we, when we're talking about David strengthening himself in the Lord his God, he is rehearsing who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised to do before Jonathan in chapter 23 helped him in this process. And praise be to God, we have an example in chapter 30 of David himself making that so important turn in strengthening himself in the Lord, his God. It is not some kind of pep rally that he's giving to himself. 
building himself up. No, 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 no. <clears throat> As we will see, and I think one commentator helps us, uh, an author and previous pastor who's since retired, Roger Ellsworth, this is how he comments on this passage. To strengthen ourselves in God means we remind ourselves of what Scripture says about God and His promises. And we bring those truths to bear on the present situation. So, every trial causes opposing voices to ring in our ears. Every trial. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that if you look out, this situation is truly hopeless. The other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for that very trial. I think that's helpful in thinking about what it means to strengthen ourselves in the Lord in times of need. By faith, by faith alone, we lay hold of the Lord and his salvation and all of the promises that he has made to his people. Thank you, my brother Dennis. <clears throat> so in chapter 27, David allowed his heart to speak to him if you remember, I know it's been a while. What's so different here is that he's speaking to his heart and telling his heart where to go and to whom to go. There's a very big difference, and we see the ripple effect of both decisions. What happened in 27, and now what's happening in chapters 29 and 30. In verse 4, David, along with all the men, had no strength left because of their grief. But where David's strength fails, this is so hopeful for God's people. God's strength takes over. And please hear me. His strength will never fail. We see our strength again and again just give way. We can't do it in our own strength. And this turning to the Lord is such helpful direction for all of the saints. This is where the Christian faith and the theme of suffering wed together and should not be separated. Suffering is, to the world, kind of counterintuitive to experiencing blessing and joy and the goodness of God. It's counterintuitive that suffering actually leads believers into the throne room of grace on the outside, we see suffering and we're like, off limits, I don't want any of that. But when we watch from God's word and in our own life's testimony, when we encounter suffering of various ways and trials of various kinds, we actually begin to see what happens in a believer's life when you make that pivot and pointing and turning to God and strengthening yourself. So to just think about this for, for a little bit, this is where, in the Christian faith, suffering, like I mentioned, is counterintuitive and can be declared good for us. In suffering, the deliverance consists in our being allowed, not in ex escaping, but being allowed to put the matter out of our own hands and into the hands of God. This is actually a way to freedom. Not freedom from the circumstance or the suffering itself, but experiencing freedom and, and how you can actually, where once maybe clinging on to things and trying to handle them yourselves, laying them before the Lord who is sovereign over all and able to handle more than we could ever imagine. There is freedom there. Suffering is good for us because it drives us to God. Suffering brings to the surface our weakness and how finite we really are. It is good to recognize that we are in need of help. God displays his strength, we're told, from his word in our weaknesses. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, David in the previous chapters displayed his own strength. Remember when Saul described David as being cunning? We saw how that worked out. David, sure, was a very talented man. He had strategies, tactics, very cunning. It wasn't until this point, though, that we see this kind of clicking into place, the penny dropping, so to speak, where David is no longer relying on self, identifying his helplessness and turning and strengthening himself in the Lord his God. He is bound, so to speak, by the situation. He is about to be stoned by the men that he has been leading for the last, well, several years, but 16 months in the land of the Philistines. He is at the end of his rope, and we see this gracious turn, turning to the Lord. And I don't want us to miss this. This is a roadmap in the midst of suffering for the people of God. We turn to the one who is stronger. We gladly lay it before him, run to our father and plead for his help. We all live with life's duties, problems, successes, failures, experiences, perplexities of this life. And David is helping us see that there is a faith-filled life being on display when we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. So suffering should move a believer to cling to God. Suffering should drive a believer into the bountiful grace of God. And so I just want to pause for a moment and ask, because we all experience suffering of various kinds. When that is hitting you and you're experiencing it, where do you turn? How is it playing out in your life? Have you experienced what it's like to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God? If David had previously appealed to his own resources, which we see there was no turning to prayer in chapter 27, no seeking the Lord, things have radically changed and they've changed quickly. So we see this strengthening himself in the Lord and then what we get to see unfold is the outworking of that, the fruit of that, so to speak. And the first thing in our text is that he immediately goes to Abiathar. And this is telling to us because on the ephod, if you remember, were those two stones, we think, Umen and Thumen, where there was discernment given to the people on what direction they should go from God. It was part of the, the ephod clothing, a, a place for that. And remember, Saul slaughtered the priest and one escaped and went to David. And this is where we find David now interacting. And it's more than just this personal interaction. This is David's actions actually displaying a, a turning to the Lord in all spheres of his life. This is beautiful repentance and turning back to the way in which he should have been walking. And so he goes, gets the ephod, and seeks the Lord's will on what to do. Where before it was a reliance on self, his cunning ways, this is clearly testifying to all who are able to see, I need the Lord. This is not just in talk, but in word and, and deed, there is an activity, an action happening of him going to God and asking for help. This is how he inquired in verse 8, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Pursue is a command. This answer is given by God, go 
and you will overtake them. Now, at this point, just by way of reminder, there, there is no indication that they know who it is or where this people have gone. But God has said, go. The Amalekites were known to be more nomadic people, and so this could have been a pretty daunting turning and going, I'm not exactly sure where, but we're going. The important emphasis here is David went. A critic might say that David was heading into kind of a trackless desert with really poor odds of ever finding the enemy. David, I think, would reply, after all that's happened and this turning to the Lord, I'm obeying what God has said, what is clear, and relying on him to fulfill what he has promised to me. There is, there is hope and faith in not knowing exactly how this is going to all unfold, but knowing who has called him to go. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I hope you're familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a poem while in prison in 1944. This German pastor and scholar entitled this particular poem, Stations on the Road to Freedom. And there are four stations that he describes in this poem. Discipline, action, suffering, and finally death in this road to freedom. He writes that when it comes to discipline, if you set out to seek freedom, then learn above all things to govern your soul and your senses for fear that your passions and longings may lead you away from the path that you should follow. Chaste be your mind and your body, and both in subjection, obediently, steadfastly seeking the aim set before them. Only through discipline may a man learn to be free. Being free to Bonhoeffer is in part about being disciplined. And I want to make sure we understand what he meant by this. By this, he meant living by the concrete command to love God and to love others, to live according to God's commands, and that obedience is part of and flows from the life of faith. So this, this first stop, this first station, so to speak, in the road to freedom Maybe unique and different than what you might have placed as one of the stations, but discipline in that you are willing and obedient to God's word. You are allowing God to dictate what is right, what is wrong. He is the one ruling and on the throne, and you are willing to submit to what he has commanded. That is actually on the road to experiencing freedom. That may be like a paradigm shift for some as you're thinking, man, freedom means I get to go and do whatever I want. In the Christian life, you don't understand, I hope you understand, but some may not understand that God's ways are so good. When we think of God's law and we hear in the Psalms that, that there is a, a longing for God's law, it is so rich and so good, like honey on the mouth. Sometimes there's a disconnect there, but if you understand that God is holy, perfect, just, awesome, and worthy of praise, and he's given us all that we need for life and godliness to flourish, things start to change when, when approaching God's commandments. It's not a burden. It is a joy to walk in obedience on the road that God has designed that will bring life. Now, do, we all understand that we have failed miserably in keeping God's commands, and there's that blinking light, we are in need of a Savior, yes and amen, and we look to the Lord Jesus who perfectly obeyed. But once we are adopted into the family of God, been forgiven our sins, given the gift of eternal life, justified by faith in Christ alone, okay, you look at God's law completely different. God's law to his people is for us to understand who he is and how we are to live and thrive as his people, glorifying him in all things. 
Bonhoeffer is so helpful here. In describing the next station on the road to freedom, he describes action as one living by faith, going out to the storm and daring to do what is right, trusting in God whose commandments you faithfully follow. And he says, freedom, exultant, will become your spirit with joy. And I, I want to just tie that back into how David responds. He goes and seeks the Lord's will, and then he obeys. Disciplined and action. And he goes forth to do what God said he would be able to do. David went, and we're not going to be able to go through every detail of this story, but I want to just highlight on the going, it was God who provided all that was needed for David to persevere and to sustain and to accomplish what he had given him an answer to do. How did he do that? On their way out, after the 200 men that were too exhausted were dropped off to watch the baggage, they head out, the 400 with David, and they find an Egyptian slave servant. Just happenstance, right? No, 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 no. We don't believe in happenstances. It just randomly occurred. God is orchestrating all things. And in his kind providence, they run into this one servant that then unlocks after they feed him and kind of bring him back to life. He hadn't eaten in three days. He's able to actually talk and agrees to lead them to the Amalekites. God gets all the glory for anything that happened in David leading his men to go and execute on this mission. This man just happens to find his way into their sight and unlocks exactly where to go. And once that's unlocked, we all heard the story. The Amalekites are just partying in the fields. David and his men come in and just destroy them all. And God allowed in his, in his mercy and grace for no one to be harmed, nothing to be lost. And David is able to, after slaughtering the Amalekites, 400 little guys got away on camels, to bring everything back. God restored all that was lost and they start heading back. And where I want to just camp out a little bit is what happens next. Two different things happen that display the fruit of, of David's turning back to the Lord in faith and then walking by faith. So he brings them back and you, you heard the story on their way back when the 200 that were left holding the bags, see all that's coming back. You can just imagine the joy and excitement to see their, their brides and their children. All that was lost, everything is there. And some wicked scoundrels that were part of that 400 that went do not want to give them any more than just the wives and children. Take your stuff and go. You didn't do the hard work. You didn't sacrifice with us on the front lines. You don't deserve it. And I just want to make note of this reality. David's turning in faith and then leading as the anointed. There is grace-filled understanding of God's gifts. Grace-filled understanding of God's gifts. The men who came back their justification for why the 200 don't deserve it is because we did all the work. It's possessive. David quickly corrects them, brothers, take out the we and let's point our gaze to God who delivered. He was the one who allowed any of this good to happen. He gets all the glory, so the overflow of his good gift is us keeping our hands open and letting them experience the, the joy and the gifts that we've experienced. James chapter 1, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That whole verse is important. In our lives, do you recognize that every good and every perfect gift comes down from above? It is all from God. And then we're told in James who this God is. He does not change. There is no variance to him. 
So what we see happening in the Old Testament with his people and the grace and mercy that is poured out on them, we cling to those realities of this is who God is. He does not change. And we are confident in knowing that he will care for his own and provide for his own. A lot happens there, so much so that what David does in that moment becomes actually a statute for the people of Israel going forward. That even those who stay behind and watch the baggage will be included in all the spoils and all the excellencies of, of victory. Then I also want to see one last thing. There is generosity in giving gifts, which is really just the fruit of a grace-filled life, not just to the 600 that were present, but remember, for 16 months, well, no, actually, I take that back. For years, David, on the run from Saul, has moved throughout Judah. And we get this list, kind of a laundry list, at the end of chapter 30, a lot of very difficult names to pronounce, of all the different areas and people that David has been blessed by, experienced help by over the years in some way, shape, or form. We, we're not told all the details. But what we are told here is just the generosity of David in giving gifts to the elders of Judah, giving back and really setting a trajectory of what the anointed one as the king of Israel was to be about. It was not only a kind of prefiguring what would, what would happen when, when David is actually put on the throne, but it, it prefigures the, the true one anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us glimpses of how the king acts towards his people. If you remember, Samuel warned the people of God. This is going back quite some time in 1 Samuel in chapter 8. Remember, the people longed for a king like all the nations. And Samuel, he warns them that if, if this is what you want, you need to understand this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a king that takes, that takes, that takes. And what we see here is the anointed one that God has raised up is a king who gives and gives and gives to those in need. Another commentator comments, as would be expected of the Lord's anointed, David had fought the Lord's enemies. He fights for his people. As would be expected of the Lord's anointed, he was now bringing blessing to the Lord's, the Lord's people. So we see the king functioning the way the king was designed to function, which which really just points to the ultimate one true king and how he functions towards his people. He is the one who delivers us from our enemies, and he is the one who brings blessing upon blessing to his people. When we think of King David and his interactions with his followers, I, I love that he calls them brothers. He refers to the, the elders in which he's giving gifts to as the friends of, of his company. Friends and brothers, all of that should remind us of even how the Lord Jesus in John 15 talked about his people, my, my friends, my brothers, and he pledges to meet all of their needs, primarily our need for forgiveness and our need for the gift of eternal life. We hear also in John's gospel, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus gave himself for the church, and in doing so, he has bound the strong man and plundered his house, and we are that plunder that he has rescued, he has redeemed, he has restored, and he gives us this freedom. Brothers and sisters, as we reflect upon what God has done in David's life, in the midst of extreme grief and suffering, I pray that we would posture ourselves the way that David did in this not turning the way that the, the men did and wanting to just be overwhelmed with, with rage and bitterness, but, but turning to God and strengthening ourselves in the Lord our God. Let us pray.
Father, you determined through all of the distress and trouble in David's life to gain his attention and draw him back into trusting obedience. As we look at this story, may we see this is your grace and your mercy in your servant's life. God, in your love, you will take us where we have not intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not ever achieve on our own. And we see this working out in David's life, and I pray that we would understand this is how you work in our lives as well. When we've received more than we think we can ever handle, may we, even after we've raised our voices and wept until there are, there's no more strength to, to weep, may we not turn in bitterness of soul. But may we, we follow David with the help of the Holy Spirit in turning to you and strengthening ourselves in the Lord our God. Help us even now to see that you are good and you do good. And Lord, as we have looked at, this, at these two chapters and, and your providence and your kindness and how you orchestrate all of this, our response is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways Father, the evidence of your grace in our lives, we pray similarly, would, would uh, move us to consider what we can do for others. You have blessed us to be a blessing. May this not just be a time to just only reflect inwardly in, in our own situation and circumstances, but, but to relish and to meditate upon your goodness towards us and your grace that has been lavished on us, and the gifts that have been given to us, and may we with open hands be a people that freely give to others. What a great testimony we see from your servant. And Father, we pray for the faith to walk in that same obedience. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.